0: Good morning. So we jump back now into our series looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll be here uh, up through Advent, and then we'll do a four-part series through Advent, and then we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew, leading us all the way till Easter, and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. So we pick up this morning in Matthew chapter 19, uh, starting at verse 1. We'll read there in a moment. But by way of introduction... Today, in the United States, every state, including the District of Columbia, permits no fault divorce. Every state, including the District of Columbia, permits no fault divorce. California was the first state to pass a no fault divorce law, and that was in 1969. And it was signed by Governor Reagan in 1970. Governor Reagan, who, of course, was a divorced and remarried former movie actor. And New York was the last state to pass a no-fault divorce law, and that was passed in 2010. And in many states today, including Oregon and Washington, a person seeking divorce is not permitted to allege a false-based ground. You're not permitted in Oregon and Washington to allege something like abandonment or cruelty or adultery. Uh, Sharif Gergish wrote a book a few years back called, What is Marriage? He wrote this book also with a man named Ryan T. Anderson. And he says this. He says, if marriage is essentially an emotional union, rather than one inherently to order the family life, it becomes much harder to show why the state should concern itself with marriage any more than friendship. Why involve the state and what amounts to legal regulation of tenderness? You understand his point? Gergish's point is that what is the state's interest in marriage? The state's interest in marriage is to not affirm someone's tenderness to another person. It's not to affirm someone's love to another person. It's, not to, it's, not to, its purpose, rather, is to protect the union of a man and a woman, which is for the good of society, for the protection of children. That's Gergish's argument. Why else would the state care? Why else does the state care who you love? Why else does the state care who you're tender to? Why else does the state care who my friends are? The state has a vested interest, so goes the argument of what is marriage, and protecting a union for the protection of the good of society, namely the protection of children and women. We'll come back to that. But even in God's word, and even in looking at society, there is one institution... There is one institution that can be found in every single human society and every single human culture in the history of the world. It is not a banking system. It is not a political theory. It is not a philanthropist organization. It is marriage. In every single human society, anthropologists and historians will say, in every single human society and culture in the history of the world, there has been marriage. Because... God invented marriage when he invented men and women. And because of that, we can't get rid of it. We've tried. Every society tries to get rid of it, but it's part of us. It's engrafted into our DNA. And we can't understand marriage if we don't understand the design of the creator and inventor himself. In every invention, in every creation, you must submit to the design of the inventor, in order for it to work. You can't just get rid of it, though. Every society, every culture has had it. We can't just get rid of it. When we enter into marriage, we are entering into the regulation of its creator. It's why every wedding that I do, and, and what the church has historically said, Protestant churches have historically said at the beginning of marriage ceremonies is this. That marriage is to be held in high honor among all people. It is established by God and it is regulated by His word. That's right. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it is established by God and it is regulated by our word. What God institutes, God regulates. What God institutes, God regulates. So this morning, our text is going to talk about marriage, divorce, and singleness. We're going to do all three because that's what Jesus gives us this morning. So let's read our text and we'll unpack it under those headings: marriage, divorce, and singleness. Matthew chapter 19. I'm going to read uh, verses 3 to through 12. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, "Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause?" He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better to not marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. If there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men... And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And this is God's word for us this morning. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, we come to this text as high and glorious calling of marriage. And God, we ask that you would help us to see how you would have us order our lives through your word, Lord. Lord, we pray as we even begin this sermon for the marriages and the future marriages in this church, Lord, that they would glorify you. And we ask ultimately that even through a sermon on marriage, divorce, and singleness, that our hearts would see Jesus Christ and be enamored with his beauty and glory and his greatness and his all-surpassing worth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So point one, what is marriage? What is marriage? What is marriage fundamentally about? If I were to ask you what it fundamentally means to be a doctor, and you said to wear a white coat, I would say, well, yes, white doctors wear, some doctors wear white coats, but it's not fundamentally what being a doctor is all about. So what is marriage all about? Is marriage fundamentally about procreation? Is marriage fundamentally about feelings? Or put another way, what is the most important thing about your marriage? The most important thing about your marriage is that it's not primarily about you. The most important thing about your marriage is that it is primarily about God. Your marriage isn't designed for God to make much of you, but your marriage is designed to make much of God. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22 through 32 is where Paul will begin to give his household codes. He starts with husbands and wives, then he goes to children and parents, and then he goes to slaves and masters. And he's talking verse 18 through 21, he's talking about what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit to walk in the Spirit, and he gives very practically on-the-ground instructions to household codes, to how we relate to one another, is what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And he'll say this, verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And here it is. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery is profound, that a man shall leave his father and mother and join to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery, I'm saying, is about Jesus Christ and his church. Your marriage isn't first and foremost about you. Your marriage is first and foremost about God. It's a picture. It's a living portrait of the love that Jesus Christ has for his bride. God first designed and decided to save a people through his son, Jesus Christ, and then he decided to portray that through marriage. Not the other way around. Paul isn't getting cutesy here and looking at marriages and saying, oh, you know what, that's kind of like Jesus and the church. It's the other way around. God first purposes to redeem a people for himself through Jesus Christ, And then he puts that beautiful picture on display through the medium of marriage. This is saying that from the second page of the Bible, God's grand plan was that he was going to save a people and that people would be literally part of his body. God opens, as we read this morning, as Lindsay read from Genesis chapter 2, God opens a side of Adam, takes out a rib, and creates a woman from it. She was literally part of his body. And God is saying that is just a glimpse of how the church is part of Jesus himself. We are literally part of his body. When Paul is on the road to Damascus, and he's confronted by Jesus, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Paul is not literally, in his own mind, persecuting Jesus. He's been, he's been persecuting the church. But Jesus so closely identifies with his people that Jesus says, when you persecute my people because they are part of my body, you are persecuting me. And that biblical theological line goes all the way through the Bible. Starting in Genesis chapter 2, you begin to see that when a woman is made from the rib of man, she's part of his body. That's pointing to something. That's pointing to the fact that we, when we are engrafted and bought by Jesus through his blood and become his bride, we are literally part of him. Your marriage and your union to your spouse is a beautiful and glorious and profound thing, but it is not first and foremost and fundamentally about you. It is about God. The purpose of your marriage is to make much of God. Because your marriage is the closest place under the sun that we see how Jesus relates to his people. Marriage is designed to be the display of God's love through his son to his church. It produces in miniature the beauty shared between the bride and the bridegroom. So practically then, to bring it down a bit, after waxing theological for a bit, what does it mean for us on the ground? Verse 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Practically, what that means is that marriage is primarily about leaving and cleaving. Marriage is about leaving and cleaving. Marriage is about leaving one's parents and cleaving to your wife. And the word cleave, to hold to in the ESV, means to make a covenant, it means to make a promise. It means to make a covenant. It means to make a promise. Covenant is not a word that we use very often in the modern world. It's a word that our grandparents and, 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 and forebearers would be used to. But the word covenant is akin to the word promise. But it goes a bit deeper than that. Because the word covenant says, I'm going to uphold my end of the bargain even if you don't uphold yours. The word covenant means I'm going to uphold my end of the promise even if you don't uphold yours. And the word covenant, this covenantal language, is again, not first and foremost about marriage. The word covenant is God language. It's how God speaks to us. It's how God relates to us. God relates to us in covenants. God relates to us in his promise-keeping, steadfast, faithful nature to us. Ezekiel chapter 16. said, when I passed by you, and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. He ties in that language and that imagery of marriage to get the picture across, to get the image across to us, that when God redeemed his people Israel, when God made his people Israel to be his, he made a covenant with them and he made them to be his. He covenanted with them. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's covenantal promise keeping language to hold fast. Many of us have been to weddings, some of us have been to a lot of weddings, some of us have been to really cheesy weddings. And of course, some of us have heard people that write their own vows, which is always a really risky thing to do. (laughs) We've heard things like, um, I love you so much, you complete me, I want to be with you, you're so beautiful, I want to grow old with you, things like that, which is sweet and all, and I get the point, I don't want to necessarily dog it too much. I do want to dog it a lot, but... (laughs) I just can't think of any good examples. <laughs> but the, the, the problem with it is that often it's, it's close, but it misses the mark. It misses the point. In Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, he talks about a marriage ceremony and the vows that are being given. He says that they're not declarations of present love. In a wedding, you're not just giving declarations of present love. In a wedding, Keller says, it's the promise of future binding love. A wedding vow is not at first a declaration of I love you in the moment. Of course, you'd love this person in the moment. You guys are just goo goo gaga over each other, right? But in a marriage vow, in a marriage covenant, it's the promise of future binding love. It's promising to love in the future. It's limiting your options now for the sake of future faithfulness and fruitfulness. That's a covenant. It's covenant-making language. I'm going to embarrass... I mean, I could have done this to anybody, but when I was making this sermon, I just went to my, 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 my wedding folder in my computer and I pulled out Gabe and Kelly's vows. You could have said... I mean, you, you could have said anybody because I would make you guys say the same thing. I, Gabriel, take you, Kelly, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, I will love you and give myself up for you as Jesus Christ loved his church and gave himself up for you. I will love you and cherish you until death do part us. Kelly. I take you, Kelly, oh. I, Kelly, take you, Gabriel, to be my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health. I will love you and submit to you. I will love you and cherish you until death do part us. That's future binding love. That's future promise-keeping. That's not I love you now only. It's I love you now, of course, but it's I will love you in the future. It's a promise that I'm committed to you in those seasons when I don't want to be with you. It's a promise to be with you when I don't feel like I love you. When I don't necessarily want to make this promise right now. Because... Marriage isn't primarily about you. Marriage is primarily to make much of God. And how does God relate to us in covenant? He promises that he will never leave us or forsake us. He loves us and is absolutely committed to us at our very worst. We sang it this morning. A thousand times I've failed, still your mercy remains. And should I stumble again, still I'm caught in your grace. That's the covenant nature of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God loves us despite ourselves. And in marriage, we have the opportunity to portray that, that radical covenant-keeping love that God has for his people. John Piper's book, This Momentary Marriage, he says this, that marriage is not primarily about staying in love, but marriage is primarily about covenant-keeping the feeling of staying in love will ebb and flow because we are fickle people. If God allows us to be married 50 years, the feelings towards our spouse will ebb and flow from time to time. The covenant involved in leaving mother and father and holding fast to a spouse and becoming one flesh is a portrayal of the covenant between Jesus and his church. To say I love you is not a covenant. But to say I will love you is. It can be said that the only way to control your past is to forgive. The only way to control your past is to forgive. But it can also be said that the only way to control your future is to make a covenant. The only way to control your future is to make a covenant See, this is upside-down thinking in the world that we live in, because the world we live in says that we need to throw off all restrictions, all restraints, and leave our options open, because we don't know what's going to happen in the future, so we need our options open. And yet, in the Scriptures, God is constantly calling us to limit our options, to make restrictions, and then and only then do we truly find ourselves, and then and only then do we find true human flourishing. We think that by keeping our options completely open, then we'll find human flourishing. Because we never know what's around the corner, what's around the bend, what's going to come our way. But again and again and again, the testimony of the scriptures is to limit our options, to commit to something, to make a future promise with ourselves, with another human being, or a group of people in church membership. And then... And that kind of commitment, that kind of covenant, can human beings truly find human flourishing. Because only in that context of relationship can you be honest with who you really are. In any other context of human relationship, if options are open, then you need to protect yourself. You need to guard yourself. You can't let people see who you really are. Because if they know what really goes on in the deep, dark crevices of your heart and your mind and what you think about, and they know about all your rough edges, they're going to put you out. They don't want anything to do with you when you limit your options and you covenant with someone you covenant with another human being we do this in friendship too to a lesser degree we do this in church membership to a lesser degree but we allow ourselves to be vulnerable we allow ourselves to be truly human among the people that we're around and then and then here's the counterintuitive nature of it then we can be truly loved we can be truly loved You see, the scriptures are constantly telling us that God knows our frame, he knows our every thought, he knows our every hair on our head, and yet he still chooses to chase us and love us with his lavish, gracious love in Jesus Christ. And we can experience that on a small scale in human relationships. My wife knows a lot about me. She still doesn't know everything about me because I'm a complex human being and you're a complex human being. But she knows a lot about me, a lot more than anybody else in this room knows about me. And yet she still chooses to love me, to accept me, to even be nice to me. (laughs) The way that we become is by being unconditionally loved, first by God and then by others. The way that we ultimately become, the way that human beings mature, progress become loving kind humble people is by being unconditionally loved and that can only happen in the context of unconditional love in human relationships but first and foremost by God think of our own children how do they grow and mature our own children grow and mature and become because they're unconditionally loved by their parents and family they're unconditionally loved by their parents and family And it's absolutely true in marriage. I'll go a little further, and then I'll go to the next point. The sub-point about marriage. Be considered what it means that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Sure. Sure, it suggests uh, that there was freedom from their physical imperfection but there's also we must also recognize the emphasis on the fullness of the covenant love between one another in other words they were free from shame from each other there's two ways to be free from shame right one is that you're actually perfect and you have nothing to be ashamed of anybody in this room didn't think so the other way is that i am imperfect but i have no fear of being disapproved by my spouse I am imperfect, but I have no fear of being disapproved by my spouse. In the first case, obviously, there's no shame because we're flawless. But in the second case, there's no shame because covenant love covers a multitude of flaws. Covenant love covers a multitude of flaws. So that's the first thing I want to say about marriage is there in verse 5. The first thing about marriage is first it's about God and his covenant-keeping love to us. Therefore, the first thing about marriage to us is it's covenant-keeping. It's a covenant. It's a future-binding promise that we make with one another the second thing i want to talk about is the purpose of marriage look again at verse five verse five says the word therefore or for this reason and these are great indicators in your own personal bible study they're called purpose clauses they tell us the reason that something is happening therefore a man shall leave his father and mother why should he leave his father and mother why should he leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife this is therefore Because of this, a man shall leave his father and mother. What's the therefore? What's the therefore pointing to? Verse 4. He made them male and female. He made them male and female. Do you know what a malediction is? A malediction You know what a benediction is? A benediction is a good word. A malediction is a bad word. You know the first malediction that appears in the Bible? It is not good for man to be alone. It is not good. Genesis 2.18, we get the first malediction. It is not good for man to be alone. I will create for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to which he should call them. The man gave names to all the livestock, but for Adam there was not found a helper for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed it up in its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man and said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The first malediction is that Adam doesn't have a companion for himself. He doesn't have a suitable helper, the word says here. The first problem is that Adam, the first bad word, this is not, so far it's been, it is good, the Lord God made it, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, good, full stop, this isn't good. Adam doesn't have a suitable helper. Adam doesn't have a companion. And the word here, just to... Realize the power of this word. We can think this word, and sometimes in uber-conservative circles, we can think of this word helper to be less than, or some kind of appendage of sorts, maybe, or an accessory of sorts. A helper that could maybe give us a hand from time to time. But the word helper, a suitable helper in the Old Testament, is most often ascribed to God. God is most often ascribed to God. Deuteronomy 33: Oh hear O Lord the voice of Judah and bring him to his people with your hands contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. Psalm 20. I am poor, poor and needy. Hasten to me O God for you are my help. My deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. I lift my eyes, Psalm 121, to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is not a weak word. This is not a weak word talking about a second class citizen in your own household. This is the one that was made from your own body who is a suitable, strong helper for you. Don't read that word as some in uber-conservative circles have done and relegate your wife to some kind of weak role. That's ungodly, unbiblical, and wicked. Brothers and sisters, the helper that God gives to Adam, the companion that God gives to Adam is a strong helper and the exact one that Adam needs. Gordon Wenham in his commentary on Genesis, says this is a statement of complementarity rather than identity. He says we may think of the word suitable as adequate or acceptable, but Wenham suggests that we should think of it instead like a piece of a puzzle. Like the pieces of a puzzle. Puzzle pieces don't randomly fit together. They are specifically and purposely different. They're differenti- differentiated such that when you fit them together, you have a complete whole. That's what the word suitable means. It doesn't just mean adequate, it means perfectly differentiated from you. It's a suitable, strong, perfectly differentiated, complementary person for you. I must say something here because of the cultural moment that we live in regarding gay marriage. Throughout the testimony of this passage and the testimony of the scriptures, it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and join fast to his wife. This is the consistent biblical theological picture of marriage, that marriage is between a man and a woman, that they are perfectly differentiated between each other. In the notion of marriage, we have one embracing the other. We have one embracing one that is different than them. We have one embracing one that is different than them. Miroslav Wolf, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, says this. He says, on the cross, the love of God is there for the other. On the cross, the love of God is there for sinners. He says, this reciprocal self-surrender to one another is within the trinity And it is manifested in Christ's self-surrender in a world which is a contradiction to God. And this self-giving draws all those who believe in him and enter into eternity with him. You see the point that Wolf is making. Miroslav Wolf is making the point that on the cross, in the person of Jesus Christ, God is embracing the other. God is constantly embracing the other. And within the design of marriage, if marriage is a picture of Jesus and his church... If marriage is the embrace of another, the differentiated, it's why men and women were made different. It's a picture of his godness, embracing one that is different than you. And I'll just add one more point. This cultural moment that we find ourselves in is, is that. It's a cultural moment. In 2,000 years of orthodoxy, of Christian tradition, the notion that marriage was not between a man and a woman was completely unfounded. It's a very unique cultural moment that we find ourselves in. And we ought to be careful and we not be anachronistic or have chronological snobbery and think that we've figured it out because we've figured out a new kind of scholarship in the last couple decades. We ought to be very slow and look at the historical teachings of the church and the historical teachings of all the major religions which influenced Western society. What I was trying to drive at is that this idea of marriage, this suitable helper, this idea is companion, it's friendship, it's closeness. He didn't have a companion. He didn't have a helper. So marriage is a covenant, and marriage is about friendship. A deep friend, a deep covenant partner. Bone of my bone, not just I love you, but I am you. I am part of you. This is bone of my bone. The first thing that Adam does, this is the first poem in human history. He sings a song. And I, 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 sometimes I've, well, never mind. He sings a song (laughs) I've kind of wondered if it should just kind of go along to like a jazz beat or something. You know, like this is bone of my bone and this is flesh of my flesh. If he just was kind of getting real excited about it, you know what I'm saying? Okay, that's just me. So let me get practical in application and then we'll move on to the next point. Uh, Singles, let me address you for a moment. (laughs) All in the front row. If this is what marriage is about, then doesn't it bring a lot more uh, weight and value to not being unequally yoked? The church is not just being a stick in the mud by challenging young Christians to marry other Christians. Because in marriage, you have to open up and be vulnerable. You have to open up and be vulnerable. And if Jesus Christ is the most important thing in your life, it won't work. With another person who doesn't think the same thing. They'll laugh at your most core belief. They'll laugh at the core of who you are. If marriage is about being vulnerable, about truly opening yourself up, and all the things that we've been saying these last few minutes here, if all that's true, how can you actually experience that with somebody who also doesn't hold the same core belief that you do? Second application is to marriage don't pull away in your friendship with your spouse. Don't pull away in friendship with your spouse. Your marriage is dysfunctional if it's not a friendship. Do everything you can to get it there. I know for some of you it's been years. It's been years since you've experienced that kind of friendship and intimacy. But do whatever you can. Fight for it. Fight to be vulnerable with one another. And it's going to take one of you to start it's going to take one of you to put one foot in front of the other. And your, your approaches and your efforts, just, re, just go into it realizing that your approaches and your efforts are likely going to be rescinded at first. Go in with not the expectation that you took the first step and now they're going to respond exactly how you wanted them to. They're probably not going to. But it's worth it. Go into it. And again, singles one more time. If marriage is primarily about covenant and friendship, then there's something else I need to bring up to you. That the most natural thing that we do when we walk into a room and we scan and we look at the men and women that are in there is we're drawn to those that are attractive. We're drawn to those that are physically attractive to us. I'm not saying, of course, that you shouldn't be physically attracted to your spouse, but if marriage is first and foremost fundamentally about covenant and friendship, then maybe some of us have eliminated some of the best prospects because our first thought was romance and attractiveness. If marriage is first and foremost about covenant and friendship, then we need to change the way that we we naturally think when we walk into a room. Again, I'm not saying, so don't come, up, don't, don't come up to me after the sermon saying, you shouldn't be attracted to your spouse. Didn't say that. <laughs> Didn't say that. I am saying, though, that that's not the first thing that marriage is about. It's not. And some of us have eliminated good opportunities and prospects for great spouses because our minds were first thinking about romance and attraction. Point two, the ending of marriage. The ending of marriage. There is a few ways that marriages can end. Let me go through them very briefly. One way that marriage can end is in death. One way that marriage ends is in death. Paul will be clear to us in Romans chapter 7. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking for those who know the law, but the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound, to, bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay, That's the first way. A marriage ends when one of the spouses passes away. A marriage ends when one of the spouses passes away. Jesus will also tell us that there is no marriage in the resurrection. That all marriages end one day. Because ultimately we will be united to Jesus as our bride. Groom. That's way number one. Way number two. If an unbelieving spouse insists on leaving a believing spouse what is the believing spouse to do? 1 Corinthians chapter 7 goes like this, starting at verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving spouse, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you or your husband will be saved? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The second way is if a believing spouse is abandoned by their unbelieving spouse. The unbeliever says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. I don't want anything to do with this Christianity stuff. I'm done. Paul says that the person's not enslaved, that God has called you to peace. Or another translation says God has called you to freedom. That's way number two. Now here's way number three, which is um, somewhat debatable. Now I wrote my senior thesis at Multnomah on this passage. And I argued for a view called a permanence view. it's a a pretty extreme minority view, even among conservative scholars, okay? I'll explain to you what that means. But number three, the third way, is adultery, which appears in our text here. Matthew chapter 19, starting at 6, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardest of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Therefore, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. That phrase, except for sexual immorality, is the hinge. How are we to understand that? That phrase in the Greek is the word porneia, except in the case of sexual immorality. Now, the permanence view that I held for a long time and argued for in my senior thesis goes like this. In both Matthew chapter, Mark chapter 10 and in Luke 16, when Jesus is questioned by the Pharisees, the exception clause, except for sexual immorality, doesn't appear. It's not there. The only place that the exception clause appears is here in Matthew chapter 19. So we must ask ourselves, why... Does the exception clause appear in Matthew chapter 19 only? Again, extremely, it's a minority view, but it says this What uniquely happens in Matthew's gospel that doesn't happen in Mark and Luke's gospel? It's a story of Joseph quietly putting Mary away. Joseph, when he found out that Mary was pregnant, intended to quietly put her away. So the argument goes that during a betrothal period, if the spouse commits sexual immorality, then it would have been lawful to put her away. So in a sense, the argument goes that when Matthew gets to Matthew chapter 19, he's trying to save Joseph from being indicted for doing something uh, sinful. If someone decides to put his wife away, except for sexual immorality, like what likely Joseph thought was happening at the beginning of Matthew's gospel— and that's the view that I held for a long time. It's John Piper's view as well, which is probably why I held it. <laughs> I'm saying held in the past tense term, in the past tense sense, because I'm not sure exactly where I personally land on this issue right now. The other view held among conservative scholarship is that Divorce is permitted in the case of protracted abandonment, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and adultery. And adultery. And the reason why this second argument is becoming more persuasive to me is for three reasons. One, the use of pornea has a much broader meaning than just uh, sexual relations during a betrothal period it just means much more than just sexual relations during a patrol period. It has a broader meaning than that. So to ascribe just in a lexical sense for the word to mean that, it means more than that. Second, Matthew oftentimes gives a lot more details than Mark or Luke do. Just because that's what Matthew's known for. Mark is known for his economy of style. Matthew's known for being verbose. This this generation will not see a sign, Mark says. Matthew says, this generation will not see a sign, except for the sign of Jonah. Why did he feel the need to say except for the sign of Jonah? Because he likes to talk a lot. I don't know. <laughs> and the third reason is because the reason that Moses initially gave the certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 was the protection of women and children the reason that Moses initially gave and authorized a certificate of divorce was for the protection of women and children. Realize what it would have been like in an agrarian, nomadic society to put your wife away. She would have been destitute, utterly destitute. So the certificate of divorce allows her to be remarried and to have someone take care of her and provide and protect her. I think the same would have been true in the ancient world that Paul's writing into. That Paul has in mind the protection of women. He's saying from the beginning it shouldn't have been this way, but because of the hardness of heart, because of sinful behavior, it is so. I will add two things. Number one, I meant to say this a few minutes ago. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It's just not. And we don't want you to feel that way. The grace of the gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ, covers a multitude of sins. And divorce is not the sin that alienates you from God or alienates you from us. And the second thing I want to say is that because of my minority position, the position of the elders has been since the beginning of the church that in cases of protracted abandonment, and in cases of adultery, it is not, you, 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 are, you are free in your conscience before God to choose to divorce. It is not a matter of church discipline. Remarriage is another issue. Remarriage is another issue. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, when he says that they're not enslaved and they're called to peace, are called to freedom... I don't take Paul meaning God has called you to peace to mean free to remarry. I don't see that's what that means. Paul, the lover of singleness, Paul who was the promoter of singleness, I can't envision him thinking that way. And second, even if there is adultery and divorce is permitted, I don't take that to mean necessarily that one is free to remarry. So even if there were biblical grounds to divorce on the case of sexual immorality, I don't take the Bible showing us that remarriage is permitted because of what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Whoever divorces his wife, let, her give a cert- let him give her a certificate of divorce, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I know that some could take that to mean that if she had the exception clause, it's not adultery, but that's not what it says on its face value. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So my view, what I think the Bible's teaching us, is that only in the case of death, Romans chapter 7 is remarriage permitted. Well, let me drive us to a close since it's Lunchtime. I just want to say about singleness. We've been addressing it some, but point three is singleness, where Jesus here is addressing uh, the eunuchs. And some of you men might be worried about this phrase here. If you don't know what it means, pull me aside. I'll explain it to you later. But essentially what he's saying is that some people are called to be, are spiritually called to be unmarried. Paul's going to call it singleness a gift for some of us. Paul's going to say, he says, I wish that all were as I am myself, but each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. He says it's good. To the widows and the unmarried, it's good to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. He's going to describe singleness in a glorious kind of way free from obligation to to spouse and children, to use it for the sake of other people, to use it for the sake of the ministry. So to those of you that are single now, embrace the gift that God has given you right now. It's a gift that God has given you. You're able to do things that I'm not able to do. You're able to do things that most of us in this room are not able to do, to use it for his glory, to serve other people, to serve the advancement of the kingdom, to serve in missions trips, to serve in all sorts of opportunities that the rest of us can't serve in. Paul will call at one point later in this letter in first Corinthians, he'll call getting married worldly. Like, next time Vanessa gives me a honeydew list, I'm gonna say that's that's just worldly, Vanessa. I'm about the things of the Lord. She's not just sitting there. Not to be if you're not depressed by loneliness or sexual deprivation, and you can endure, then see it as a calling. See, it is a calling from God to serve him and his kingdom. I'm going to use my singleness. I'm going to use my freedom that God has given me, even if it's for just a period of time. I'm going to use the freedom that I have in my singleness to serve people and to serve you, O Lord. I'm going to use my independence. I'm not going to rage against it. Well, let me close with this. He says, let the one who's able to receive this, receive it. And I think there's a tendency to hear that by saying, this is a really hard word. If you can grit up and bear it, then bear it. But I don't think that's the way that Jesus is speaking to us. Because Jesus will speak to us in Matthew chapter 11. He'll say that his his burden is easy and his yoke is light. His burden is easy and his yoke is light. He doesn't say there isn't one. He doesn't say there's no yoke. He doesn't say there's no burden. He said it's easy. It's light. Come to me who need rest. If you can receive this, receive it. Because this reception of this design for marriage and relationships and enduring is for your good. It's for your flourishing. If you can receive it, if you can bear this light yoke that I have for you, compared to the yoke of the world, the yoke of destroyed marriages and relationships, And multiple marriages and multiple divorces, if you can bear this light and easy yoke, if you can receive it, then I am with you even to the end of the age. He is the Good Shepherd. He is the Good Shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. He is this Good Shepherd who's promised to be with you even to the end of the age. God loves marriage. It is his picture of his covenant-keeping love with his bride. He loved marriage so much that he was willing to die to portray the covenant-keeping nature of his own love and grace. He kept his covenant with us to such a degree that his blood was poured out on a Roman cross till he breathed his last and died. He kept his promise till the very, very end. So that now we, Can be brought back to the father we can experience his love and grace and mercy and be called sons and daughters and one day on that great marriage supper of the lamb we will be brought in we will be brought into the heart of things we will see reality as it truly is we will see the glory of the lord and behold it and we will see the ultimate covenant keeping nature of our gracious god and king let us pray